to the Critique Journal Club for October 2016. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the intensive care literature for the last month. And it was a big month because of the European meeting in Milan where a lot of papers were presented and subsequently published. So let's get started. In the New England Journal of Medicine, we had the effect of short-term versus long-term blood storage on mortality after transfusion. So the fresh blood, old blood debate has piqued our interest in recent years. In 2015, we had the recess trial that reported no difference in MODs or other outcomes in 1,100 cardiac surgery patients randomised to receive what became 7-day versus 28-day old blood. We also had the ABLE trial, which reported no difference in 90-day mortality or secondary outcomes in 2,500 critically ill patients randomised who ended up receiving 6 versus 20-day old blood. The background for this was a systematic review of 18 observational studies, which involved 400,000 patients and three randomised controlled trials involving a total of 126 patients that suggested that older red cells compared to newer red cells were associated with a 16% increase in the risk of death in critically ill patients. So this large pragmatic RCT was conducted in six hospitals in four countries and it's an important addition to the literature. It was hospital-based, not ICU-based. They randomised patients one to two to oldest versus newest available blood and they ended up including 21,000 hospital patients and they excluded massive transfusion, etc. They found that at baseline they were well matched, the median age was 69 years, the hospital length of stay at transfusion was two days. There was a treatment effect, so the age of blood ended up being 13 days for new versus 24 days for old, and they were seeking a separation of 10 days, which they got, so that's good. And the median number of red cells transfused were two units. Hospital mortality, the primary outcome, 9.1% for new versus 8.7% for long, odds ratio 1.05, 95%, confidence intervals 0.95 to 1.16, so that's not significant. There were no difference in pre-specified high-risk subgroups, cardiovascular surgery, 12.3 versus 11.2% mortality, intensive care patients, 13.3 versus 12.8% mortality, cancer patients, 8.4% versus 8.8% patients. So in hospital patients requiring a blood transfusion, old versus new made no difference. With transfuse about to finish enrolment in Australia and New Zealand, we will hopefully have the final answer to this question in the next year. Okay, slightly off topic for intensive care, but still perhaps of interest. In JAMA, we had the effect of conscious sedation versus general anesthesia on early neurological improvement among patients with ischemic stroke undergoing endovascular thrombectomy. So if you have been wondering if conscious sedation during a stroke thrombectomy results in better early neurological improvement compared with general anaesthesia, this is the trial for you. Is single centre randomised 150 patients with acute ischemic stroke to receive GA with intubation versus conscious sedation without intubation during their thrombectomy? And the thrombectomy technique, such as a usage of a stent retriever or direct thrombus aspiration, was chosen at the discretion of the interventionalist and adapted to the occlusion site, vascular status, 
and clot burden in each patient. What do they report? Well, uh, in terms of the cohort, it was 150 of 1,800 patients admitted with ischemic stroke. So less than 10% were eligible, so it's not for everyone. The primary outcome, which was the 24-hour NIHSS scale, um, there was no significant difference in the score change with a 24-hour follow-up, it was minus 3.6 points in conscious sedation versus minus 3.2 points in general anaesthesia. There were over 50 secondary outcomes with the notable findings that general anaesthesia was associated with less frequent patient movement. It's not surprising. More frequent hypothermia. It's surprising. Delayed extubation. It's not surprising because they were intubated. And pneumonia. More patients were functionally independent in the um, general anaesthesia group versus the conscious sedation group, and there was no difference in mortality at three months. So overall, conscious sedation did not result in better early neurological outcomes compared to general anaesthesia for stroke thrombectomy. Sounds like you can do whatever you're good at, um, and there needs to be some more research on long-term outcomes. Let's go with JAMA, effective conservative versus conventional oxygen therapy on mortality among patients in an intensive care unit, the oxygen ICU, RCT. So there are theoretical and proven risks of hyperoxia, lung toxicity, increased reactive oxygen species, the proxy trial report of increased long-term mortality after abdominal surgery, the AVOID trial reporting increased myocardial infarct size. However, the ideal oxygen target in ICU remains unclear and we still routinely provide periods of hyperoxia. The oxygen ICU study randomised 480 adults with an expected ICU length of stay of 72 hours or longer to a conservative oxygen protocol, which was an FiO2 of at least 0.4 with SATs of 97 to 100% and a PaO2 up to 150 millimetres of mercury, titrating up if SATs were less than 95 to 97%, versus standard oxygen protocol, FiO2 at lowest possible, SATs 94 to 98, PO2 70 to 100 and titrating trade down if stats were greater than 98 and COPD end of life and ARDS patients were excluded. The study was not blinded. They report that patients were matched at baseline, that they achieved treatment separation so the conservative arm had a median PO2 of 87 versus standard 102. Um, the primary outcome was ICU mortality, conservative 8.6% versus conventional 11.6%, uh, an absolute risk reduction of 0 0.09, 95% confidence intervals of 0 0.02 to 0 0.15, relative risk of 0.57, and they report a p-value of 0 0.01 for that. Secondary outcomes... Uh, conservative was associated with decreased hospital mortality, 24.2 versus 33.9%, decreased in new shock and liver failure, no difference in new respiratory or renal failure, decrease in new bacteremia, and an increase in ventilator-free hours, with a median difference of 24 hours. And finally, the trial was terminated early because of difficulty with patient enrolment. 
So, how do we interpret a single-centre study, which is non-blinded, that was stopped due to enrolment, that was an arguably high conservative um, oxygen target, so it is 94 to 98% SATs really conservative, and reports multiple benefits in the intervention arm outcomes. So although the results are biologically plausible and they fit our current sort of preference and bias regarding oxygen and critical illness, this must only be considered as hypothesis generating. Ideally, we will now progress to a multi-centre blinded RCT that compares the current standard therapy and there will have to be a debate about what that is. Is it 98 to 100% or over 96% or whatever to an agreed intervention? And again, there will have to be a debate about what that intervention of conservative oxygen is. Is it 88 to 92, 90 to 92, etc.? Either way, this provides further impetus to study oxygen. Let's stick with respiratory support and JAMA. Effective post-extubation high-flow nasal cannula versus non-invasive ventilation on re-intubation and post-extubation respiratory failure in high-risk patients. So what is better or non-inferior at preventing re-intubation and respiratory failure after extubation? High-flow or non-invasive? This multi-centre, non-inferiority clinical trial randomised 604 adults requiring more than 12 hours ventilation and scheduled for extubation and considered high risk for extubation failure to high flow post-extubation, that was OptiFlow at 10 litres per minute, titrated up in 5 litre per minute steps until the patient was uncomfortable with the FiO2 titrated to SATs greater than 92% and that was applied for 24 hours, or non-invasive, which was face mask via BiPAP vision with PEEP and inspiratory pressure adjusted for respiratory rate of 25, SATs greater than 92%. Again, this is all for the first 24 hours. They established predefined criteria for reintubation and defined post-extubation respiratory failure. They report at baseline, patients were well matched with the median ventilation time four days prior to extubation. The NIV was delivered for 14 hours. The primary outcome, reintubation within 72 hours, occurred 22.8% for high flow, 19% for non-invasive, non-inferior, persisted after multivariate analysis. Post-extubation respiratory failure within 72 hours, high flow, 27%, non-invasive, 40%, and that reached the non-inferior threshold. Secondary outcomes. There was no difference in time to re-intubation, 26 versus 21 hours, VAP, sepsis, multi-organ failure, hospital length of stay, mortality, reason for failure. Median ICU length of stay was shorter in the high-flow group, 3 versus 4 days, 0.048, and there was no difference in adverse events. So overall, high flow immediately post-extubation was not inferior to non-invasive for risk of re-intubation and for post-extubation respiratory failure in patients at high risk of re-intubation. The caveats are it was a high-risk group, the treatment was delivered for the first 24 hours only, there were protocolised treatments that may not be applicable in other ICUs, and by necessity it was unblinded. Finally, the decreased respiratory failure and ICU length of stay associated with high flow are areas for further exploration. 
still it seems reasonable to conclude that high flow is non-inferior. Okay, let's go to the New England Journal of Medicine and Cardiac Surgery. The ATACAS trial, transanamic acid in patients undergoing coronary artery surgery from the ANSCA clinical trials group. So does transanamic acid reduce the risk of bleeding after coronary artery surgery? And are there adverse effects, particularly the known effects of thrombosis and seizure? And if you didn't know that, uh, there is this relationship that's been described between transanamic acid and seizure. So, the ATACAS trial was a 2x2 factorial design that randomised 4,662 patients undergoing coronary artery surgery and considered at risk for perioperative complications to aspirin versus placebo and tranexamic acid versus placebo. This paper describes the TA component. What did they tell us? TA was delivered as 100 milligrams per kilogram IV infusion for 30 minutes after induction of anesthesia. Now, cases of seizure were reported and thought to be dose-related, leading to a reduction in dose to 50 milligrams per kilogram after 1,392 patients were enrolled. The primary outcome was composite of death and thrombotic events, and the thrombotic events were non-fatal MI, stroke, PE, renal failure, or bowel infarct during 30 post-operative days. And TA, there were 16.7% had that outcome, compared to placebo, which was 18.1%, relative risk of 0.92, 95% confidence intervals, 0.81 to 1.05 p-value equals 0.22, so no difference in the primary outcome of composite of death and thrombotic events. There were no differences in the individual components of those primary outcomes either. The TA group had a lower rate of bleeding-related outcomes of the number of patients with blood loss during surgery, the number of units of red cells and other blood products transfused, number of patients who underwent blood transfusion and major hemorrhage or cardiac tamponade leading to reoperation. However, post-operative seizures occurred in 15.7% of patients with TA versus 2 patients, 0.1% in placebo, with a relative risk of 7.6 p-value 0.002. The number needed to harm to cause one additional patient to have one or more seizures with TA within 30 days after surgery was 177. So overall, they found no evidence that TA resulted in a higher risk of death or thrombotic complications among patients undergoing coronary artery surgery. They also found that TA was associated with a lower risk of blood loss, blood transfusion and reoperation but a higher risk of post-operative seizures. The results were consistent among patients who were being treated with aspirin and those who were not. So, what do you make of this? Is a decrease in bleeding and reoperation worth an increase in seizure? And I'm sure that will be debated widely now that this trial is published. Back to JAMA, and let's move on to fungal infections. Empirical mycofungin treatment and survival without invasive fungal infection in adults with ICU-acquired sepsis, candida colonization, and multiple organ failure, the Empiricus RCT. 
So the optimal treatment of candida colonization in non-neutropenic critically ill patients remains debated with high morbidity and mortality associated with invasive candidiasis and conflicting evidence regarding empirical antifungal therapy. The Empiricus trial is a multi-center double-blind RCT that compared 14 days of mycofungin, 100 milligrams IV daily, to placebo in 260 non-immunosuppressed adult patients ventilated for greater than five days with unresolved sepsis despite at least four days of broad-spectrum antibiotics and who had grown candida from at least one non-rectal fecal swab and at least one organ failure. So that seems to be the right group of patients, unresolved sepsis with a bit of candida who aren't immunosuppressed, who you would think about, should I give an antifungal to? They found baseline characteristics were well matched, predominantly medical admissions. In the intervention, the drug was well tolerated with few adverse events. The primary outcome was 28-day survival with invasive candidiasis, mycofungin 68% versus um, placebo 60%. Hazard ratio 1.38, 95% confidence at intervals 0.87 to 2.08. Secondary outcomes, there was no difference in 28-day or 90-day survival. The invasive candidiasis rate was different. In mycofungin, it was 3%. Placebo, 12%. P-value, 0.008. There was no difference in organ failure days, VAP rate, etc. So, the use of a Parenteral antifungal in non-immunosuppressed ventilated adults with organ failure, unresolved sepsis and candida colonization did not improve 28-day invasive candidiasis-free survival, survival or ICU or hospital length of stay. Mycofungin did reduce the rate of invasive candidiasis, although it is noticeable that rates are low even in a cohort of patients with prolonged ventilation on antibiotics and already colonised. The authors conclude that this calls into question the value of routine surveillance for candida colonisation as well as empirical treatment prophylactically. Let's go to critical care medicine with another myth-busting type study, pantoprazole or placebo for stress ulcer prophylaxis, the pop-up trial. So much has been published about the use of gastric acid suppressants to reduce the risk and associated morbidity mortality of GIT bleeding and the risk of VAP or hospital-acquired infection associated with prophylaxis that it is easy to believe we completely understand this issue. Published guidelines strongly recommend prophylactic administration of acid-suppressive drugs for ventilated patients, but the incidence of GIT bleeding has decreased over time, possibly due to different enteral feeding and other practices. So what about PPIs? Their use is widespread, but only two RCTs and less than 200 patients have been randomised to PPI versus placebo, reporting no decrease in GIT bleeding. In addition, there is evidence of increased Clostridium difficile infection associated with adverse infection and CVS adverse events in the community. So there are questions, and this exploratory RCT helps answer them. So what did they do? They randomised 214 adult patients anticipated to be ventilated for greater than 24 hours and receiving enteral nutrition within 48 hours to daily IV pantoprazole versus placebo. 
until ventilation ceased or a maximum of 14 days. They excluded patients with known peptic ulcer disease, gastrointestinal bleeding, steroids, cardiac surgery. The outcomes, clinically significant gastrointestinal bleeding. There was no episode in either group. Infective ventilator-associated complication or pneumonia in the placebo group, 0.9%. Pantoprazole group, 1.9%. Confidence intervals, 0.2 to 5.1. Clostridium difficile infection, placebo, none. Pantoprazole, one. Not significant. And there were no differences in minor outcomes. So what conclusions can we draw from this? In mechanically ventilated, enterally fed adults, the incidence of major GIT bleeding is low, with or without PPIs. Also, less severe or occult bleeding is rare in both groups, so the problem we are trying to prevent is much less common than we thought. In addition, the incidence of PPI-associated infections are very low. It does not address patients that cannot receive enteral nutrition or at higher risk of GIT bleeding, although it was a mixed group of ventilated patients. This is an exploratory trial, but the message is important. We need larger phase three trials which are pro- with appropriately adjusted baseline incident and effect size to determine the risk or benefit of the practice of routine PPI use in ventilated patients. Let's go back to JAMA and the HIPRESS randomized clinical trial, the effect of hydrocortisone on development of shock among patients with severe sepsis. The role of adjunctive low-dose hydrocortisone in patients with severe sepsis and septic shock remains controversial. In the Yanan study, hydrocortisone improved survival and reversal of septic shock in patients with relative adrenal insufficiency, while in Corticus, septic shock was reversed more quickly, but mortality was not significantly reduced. This RCT looks at the role of hydrocortisone in prevention of progression of severe sepsis without shock, That is, hypothesizing that severe sepsis and septic shock reflect a disease continuum and that early hydrocortisone administration might prevent shock development owing to the attenuation of an exaggerated inflammatory response. Conducted in 34 ICUs in Germany, the SEPNEP group randomized patients with severe sepsis within 48 hours of sepsis criteria in absence of shock to a continuous infusion of 200 milligrams of hydrocortisone for five days, followed by dose tapering until day 11, that was 190, or placebo, 190 patients. The groups were matched at baseline, although in contrast to previous trials, about half had hospital-acquired sepsis. The primary endpoint was the occurrence of septic shock within 14 days, and that was 21% in the hydrocort group, 23% placebo group, no difference. There were no significant differences for time until septic shock, mortality in ICU, hospital, 28-day, 90-day, and 180-day. In the hydrocortisone group, 21.5% had secondary infections compared to 17% in placebo, 8.6% versus 8.5% had weaning failure, 31% versus 24% had muscle weakness, and 91% versus 82% had hyperglycemia. 
Critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency was defined as an increase of cortisol of 9 mics per deciliter or less to convert to nanomoles per liter multiplied by 27.6 one hour after stimulation with 250 mics of corticotropin. Cortisol data from corticotropin tests were available for 206 of 353 patients, of whom about a third had critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency. In a multivariate analysis, SOFA score and critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency at baseline, but not age or sex, were independently prognostic for development of septic shock. In this subpopulation of 206 patients, there was no significant difference regarding the primary or secondary outcomes for patients that received hydrocortisone or placebo. Delirium was reduced in the hydrocortisone group. In 260 patients assessed, delirium was less frequent in patients who received steroids, 8.5% versus 19.2% p-value 0.01. And this remained significant after exclusion of another 60 patients who were diagnosed to have no delirium but had at least one incomplete delirium assessment or had only one baseline assessment. So... Overall, the use of hydrocortisone did not reduce the risk of septic shock in 14 days or improve secondary outcomes in adults with severe sepsis not in septic shock. A surprise and hypothesis-generating finding is the decrease in delirium with hydrocortisone. These findings do not support the use of low-dose hydrocortisone in this setting, but do add to the existing literature. There are other large trials underway looking at hydrocortisone in vasopressor-dependent severe sepsis, ARDS, and community-acquired pneumonia, and these may identify a population that is in a glucocorticoid-sensitive window. If not, the use of other biological markers or an alternate strategy to identify target populations for corticosteroids is required. So let's look at paediatric intensive care. Uh, and in JAMA, we have association between tracheal intubation during paediatric in-hospital cardiac arrest and survival. With the majority of paediatric arrests due to acute respiratory failure hypoxia, the standard paediatric in-hospital CPR guidelines have focused on early effective oxygen delivery and high-quality chest compression. In the pre-hospital setting, Tracheal intubation has been shown not to improve outcomes. However, in the hospital setting, with access to ICUs, trained staff, etc., it is possible that early intubation may be of benefit. This observational study examined data from hospitals participating in the Get With the Guidelines Registry, which is an American Heart Association-sponsored prospective quality improvement registry of in-hospital cardiac arrests in the U.S., and they included 2,300 patients less than 18 years of age within hospital cardiac arrest with one minute or more of chest compressions. 68% were intubated, the median age was seven months, and the time to intubation was five minutes. The analysis was conducted using descriptive statistics and a time-dependent by-minute propensity matching of non-intubation patients with intubated patients. They also analysed for interaction between intubation, yes, no, and time to intubation, linear and categorical, and sensitivity analysis were performed to account for missing data, excluding patients who received ECMO, and retracted to those requiring greater than two minutes of CPR. And finally, various subgroup analyses were performed. 
So the primary outcome was survival to hospital discharge. An unadjusted analysis reported tracheal intubation during CPR was associated with decreased survival to hospital discharge, 43 versus 67%, relative risk 0.64, 95% confidence intervals 0.59 to 0.69, p-value of less than 0.001. After matching, this was 36%, versus 41%, relative risk 0.89, still significant. Secondary outcomes include a return of spontaneous circulation, 73% for intubation, 86% for no intubation. That was significant, and after matching, it was no longer significant. Favourable neurological outcome, of which data was missing for 18%, intubation 24%, versus no intubation 43%, significant, but after matching, no longer significant. And there was no significant interaction between tracheal intubation during CPR and time of matching. In the greater two than two minutes of CPR, tracheal intubation during CPR was associated with decreased survival to hospital discharge, and intubation was not associated with return of spontaneous circulation or favourable neurological outcomes. And subgroup analysis looked at pulseless patients, patients uh, with a pulse with similar results to the whole cohort. So overall, this large multi-centre observational propensity match study was unable to demonstrate any association of improvement of survival with tracheal intubation during CPR. In fact, it showed the opposite. So what do you make of that? Would the 68% of paediatric patients intubated during CPR have had better outcomes had that been delayed? So first of all, does time-dependent propensity matching adequately deal with confounders? There was missing data, and the possibility of unmeasured confounders regarding decision for intubation is a major limitation. So although well-designed, with a sophisticated analysis and a provocative result, the question of best timing for intubation really remains unanswered. A prospective RCT would be needed to address this, but it seems unlikely that sufficient international equipoise would exist to allow this to occur. So, perhaps it is possible to say that early intubation is not associated with clear benefit in paediatric in-hospital CPR, possibly harm, and there's not enough there to change practice. Again, I'm sure this will be widely debated in circles of experts. Let's go back to the New England Journal of Medicine and levosimendin for the prevention of acute organ dysfunction in sepsis. So the Leopard's trial describes the effect of levosimendin in severe sepsis with the goal to prevent organ dysfunction. The rationale was the deleterious effects of catecholamines and myocardial oxygen consumption and the potential benefits on the microcirculation. So they randomised 516 adult patients with septic shock on vasopressors for at least four hours and within 24 hours of sepsis in 34 ICUs in the UK to levo 0.05 to 0.2 mics per kilo per minute or placebo for 24 hours. Patients received standard care otherwise. They report the groups were balanced at baseline. Median time to recruitment was 16 hours after the initiation of vasopressors. The median dose of NORAD or NOREPI was 0.28 mics per kilo per minute at infusion start. The infusion was discontinued due to hemodynamic instability in 13.5% of levo versus 7.7% of placebo. The MAP was lower, the heart rate was higher in levo for the first 24 hours and similar thereafter. 
also nor epi levels were higher in levo during this time not surprisingly the primary outcome was mean sofa score during icu stay and was not different levo cemented 6.68 placebo 6.06 mortality at 28 days was 34.5 percent levo 31 percent placebo absolute difference of 3.6 percent not significant among patients ventilated at baseline, levo was less likely than placebo for the patients to wean from ventilation by 28 days. Go figure. And there were more patients in the levo group than the placebo who had SVT, 33.1 versus 0.4%. Again, not surprising. No difference in catecholamine-free days or difference in outcomes in pre-specified subgroups. So, overall, this trial shows the addition of levosamended to standard care in patients with septic shock was not associated with less severe organ dysfunction. In fact, patients receiving levosamended were more likely to have SVT and had a longer duration of mechanical ventilation. Hard to justify such an expensive drug given all that. Let's go to the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine where we've got a couple of long-term outcome studies. Firstly, we have the RECOVER program, disability risk groups and one-year outcome after seven or more days of mechanical ventilation. Overall, interventions to improve functional outcomes after critical illness have not been successful, possibly due to the inherent heterogeneity of survivors, application of generic interventions, rehab based on skeletal muscle strength alone, measurement of specific domains of HRQL as outcome, and lack of inclusion of caregivers as possible modifiers. This multi-centre prospective observational study measured functional independence measures, FIM, at seven days after ICU, using ICU length of stay and comorbid illnesses predictors to characterise in detail the one-year physical and neuropsychological disability, healthcare use, health-related quality of life and survival of 391 medical surgical ICU patients ventilated for greater than one week. This is all part of the RECOVER program initiated in 2007 by the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group as a multi-phase program of research designed to determine risk strata to tailor post-ICU care. Towards RECOVER, the Phase 1 observational study was conducted from Feb 07 to March 14, and it is this cohort that are reported here. They report that 391 patients were enrolled in the one-year study, 352 were alive and eligible at seven days post-ICU, and this reduced to 217 by one year. The cohort were 58 years of age, most lived at home independently prior to critical illness. Respiratory failure occurred in 25%, and that was the most common diagnosis and over half received a tracheostomy, median mechanical ventilation duration was 16 days. And remember, this is a cohort that were discharged alive from ICU, so ICU deaths were excluded. At day seven, all patients reported weakness and functional limitation, which they attribute to hip and shoulder girdle weakness, poor coordination, gait and balance. 60% couldn't walk and the median FIM was 54. The total FIM best correlated with six-minute walk and was a more responsive measure of functional disability over time compared to other measures. 
20% of patients reported moderate to severe depressive symptoms from 3 to 12 months, and many reported suicidal ideation. Four disability groups were characterised, generated by recursive partitioning based on total thin at seven days. Although the spectrum of critical illness admission category and severity were similar across groups, the disability group outcomes were distinct. And these were young with short length of stay, so that's less than 42 years, less than two weeks of ICU, and they had the best outcomes. The second group were mixed-aged variable length of stay, so that was over 42 years or less than 42 years, less than 45 years and greater than two weeks of ICU and greater than two weeks of ICU all age. The third group were older and long length of stay, 45 to 66, greater than two weeks of ICU. And the fourth were oldest and longest length of stay, the over 66 years and over two weeks ICU. And they had the worst outcomes. Hospital length of stay was 67 days, 77% were unable to walk at day seven, only 20% discharged directly home and 40% had died within the first year. Functional dependence varied across the groups throughout the year. The motor tasks depend on shoulder and hip strength decreased from group one to four, while cognitive dysfunction was more uniformly affected. So in summary, the authors tell us that survivors of prolonged ICU can be divided into four distinct physical recovery subgroups based on age, ICU length of stay and functional dependency at seven days post-ICU discharge. In addition, the degree of disability at seven days determined the recovery trajectory and mortality to one year. These patterns of disability and recovery vary between groups and this knowledge may help us plan interventional interventions to trial that are specific to each group. Unfortunately, the study does not collect pre-ICU trajectory, a factor which is likely to exert a major influence on the duration of critical illness and recovery. The second outcomes study in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine was the mechanisms of chronic muscle wasting and dysfunction after an ICU stay. It was a pilot study. ICU-acquired weakness is associated with failure to wean from ventilation, increased hospital mortality, and functional disability that impairs quality of life for months to years. The underlying pathology of this has been described during critical illness, but the longitudinal, structural, functional, and molecular features have not. This prospective observational study quantified motor functional capacity, skeletal muscle size, strength and voluntary contractile capacity, peripheral nerve function and muscle biopsies to evaluate cellular signaling and processes associated with muscle proteolysis and repair over six months post-discharge in 11 of 82 critical illness survivors ventilated for greater than a week. So this is a nested cohort from the Recover study. They found that weakness, strength decreased seven days after ICU discharge and although significantly improved, did not normalise in the majority of patients by six months. Quadriceps muscle atrophy, wasting was present within seven days of ICU discharge, had improved by six months, but varied from minimal to substantial regrowth. 73% demonstrated persistent atrophy at six months. There was no significant correlation between quad muscle mass and strength at six months. 
EP testing showed evidence of neuropathy and myopathy in 80% of patients at seven days, and myopathy persisted in 40% at six months, 12% had neuropathy at six months. Quadricept inflammatory infiltrative leukocytes was present at seven days, but resolved at six months. EM of quads revealed sarcomere destruction in 100% of patients at seven days, with resolution in all at six months. Increased UPS-mediated muscle proteolysis was present at seven days, but decreased by six months and was not related to atrophy. Altered quadricept autophagy was present, but did not correlate with atrophy. Persistent muscle atrophy and muscle vascularization was associated with decreased satellite cell content. And finally, quadriceps mitochondrial content was decreased at seven days, but normalized despite sustained weakness. So overall, this small but incredibly detailed study of muscle structure and function after critical illness tells us that there is incomplete resolution of weakness and atrophy and heterogeneous changes to nerve and muscle. And of interest, these changes cannot be explained by ongoing UPS-mediated proteolysis, inflammation, muscle autophagy, or changes in mitochondrial structural content. Instead, altered satellite cell content appears to be an important association. The authors say, following injury, muscle grows via hypertrophy of existing myofibers when structural and or contractile proteins are synthesized and via regeneration where muscle progenitor satellite cells proliferate and differentiate to fuse to become mature muscle. While satellite cells are not required for the hypertrophic response of healthy muscle to mechanical load or for the regrowth of muscle atrophied simply by immobility and or unloading, they are essential for the regeneration of injured muscle. Decreased satellite cell content also contributes to sarcopenia of aging. So this is an important contribution to our understanding of the mechanisms and pathology behind acute and chronic ICU acquired weakness and how it changes over time. So let's finish up with an article published in JAMA of a political nature, Lessons to be Learned from the UK Junior Doctors' Strike. This viewpoint describes the demoralising two-year dispute between the UK government and the medical profession, culminating in a workforce at the nadir of poor morale and the UK Junior Doctors' Strike. How did it come to this? In brief, the government pushed to increase weekend cover in the face of increased demand and mortality on weekends without increasing pay in the setting of a reduced workforce compared to other OECD countries, a 48-hour work week and flat health funding since 2008 in the face of increased workload has resulted in one, substantial and often unmanageable workloads, two, loss of team structure, three, poor quality of training, four, lack of flexibility in working patterns. With this background, what happened when the NHS pushed for a contract with increased weekend working and no significant increase in pay for junior doctors? A push characterised by brinkmanship, media manipulation and attempts to sway public opinion. Well, the outcomes were increased sickness rates amongst physicians, high dropout rates of physicians from medicine throughout different career stages, 
migration of UK physicians abroad, disengagement with professional development, and finally strikes. By the end of 2015, a junior doctor strike was looming as the health minister threatened to impose a new contract. Despite the promise of a 13% basic pay increase, 98% of junior doctors voted to strike and an escalating strike action occurred from Jan to April 16. Resolution appeared possible by May 16 with the junior doctor committee accepting a revised government contract. However, the junior doctor workforce was not convinced voting against this in a ballot. This impasse continued and the debate was sidelined by Brexit. It will re-emerge and the prospect of further strikes, an unwanted contract, a further demoralised medical profession and an ongoing breakdown of the trust between doctors and government seems likely. What can we learn from this? A desire to improve patient outcomes on weekends is reasonable. To try and achieve it through a campaign that demoralises and damages a workforce, fractures the relationship between physicians and the state, leads to poorer patient outcomes every day and will take a generation to repair. The message is clear. When the relationship between the health profession and government break down, everyone suffers. Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club, October 2016. Come to the website. The last month is free to view or we will see you next month. Thank you and goodbye.